Hello, everybody. Welcome once again as we continue on in the study that we're doing through the New Testament. And we've been working through the New Testament together for several years now, pretty much a chapter at a time, and uh, looking at it in, in uh, hopefully in doing it this way, it helps to hold the New Testament in context. We looked at the Gospels, we looked at the book of Acts, springing out of the book of Acts as we had spent time studying Paul's missionary journeys. We're now looking at the letters that Paul wrote. Um, we're, we're trying to go through them in the order we believe they were written, to hold it all in context. Remembering that these letters were written to churches um, that were all brand new, um, that this whole thing was new as far as the church goes, and they were, uh, they were just working through how, how this whole thing worked out and worked together. And so, um, so that was taking place, um, and, and Paul was being asked questions. He would go into these places and start churches, and then uh, uh, he would leave. You know, normally Paul was persecuted and run out of town after a pretty short stay. Uh, I think his average stay was three months, and most of the churches he started, he had one good run of about three years. Um, but then he would, people would get jealous and the established religious community would get jealous and they'd rise up and run him out and he'd move off to the next town and start another church. And, um, and then those people would have questions, obviously, because it was brand new and they'd find Paul and ask him questions, send him letters, he'd send them back. That's how we get most of these letters in the New Testament. It's important to know that as you read them so you don't try and make them say something they're not trying to say. Um, they still apply to today, even though they were written to a specific time in question um, under the anointing and unction of the Holy Spirit. They still make perfect sense today when you hold them in context. And the church, 2,000 years later, still has the exact same situations pretty much going on. Um, they, they still deal with the same sin and the same problems and the same how we're supposed to approach those problems and what it looks like to stay together as community and how we're supposed to listen for the Holy Spirit to help us deal with things and not get judgmental and, and uh, all those things are taking place throughout these letters. We're in the book of Romans right now um, and this is um, the, the letter that we believe that Paul wrote to a church that he didn't actually start because um, he hadn't been to Rome yet. We believe the church in Rome was started um, as a result of what took place at Pentecost um, when the Holy Spirit came and the believers there that were from Rome, when they went back, they started church. Um, and, um, and so they've been pressing on now some, some years into it. Uh, and Paul writes to them uh, in kind of preparation for his hope to visit them. And um, he, in Romans, kind of lays down a basic Christian systematic theology, if you would. That's why Romans is such an important book. And uh, it, it's not always easy to read Romans. The first three chapters, if we looked, are very difficult chapters because it really talks about sin. And um, the idea is that, that we have to recognize that we've all sinned so that we know we have a need for a Savior. Then, then he begins and he addresses how the law doesn't really cover that. Um, you know, it wasn't enough that people needed Jesus, that, uh, that trying to follow the law didn't, didn't work. Uh, if it had worked, we wouldn't have needed a Savior. But uh, we needed Jesus to come and to die for us and defeat death and rise again. And all of us need Jesus as our Savior because all of us have sinned. And um, so we've been working through Romans along those lines. Uh, and he presents for us, Paul does, really what life by faith looks like. And now we're, we're, as we move into Romans 9, we sort of, um, we come to this spot where Paul begins to address the problem um, that um, Israel has and that historic Israel missed um, 
the idea of life by faith. And they had distorted the law into something that it never intended to be. They tried to make the law a way of salvation, which it wasn't designed for. Um, Like a ladder that you climbed rung by rung to sort of claim a place beside God is good. And in so doing, they lost sight of God himself. And they ignored a personal relationship with him and, and then they fell from grace. That was a problem. They had moved it, um, they had made it impossible for people to be in relationship with God. It had become completely and totally about rules and they just kept making more rules and more rules and rules don't work. And what had happened was they became very cold, um, very mean. No one was getting to God any longer because um, they, they didn't even know who he was anymore. When Jesus came onto the scene, he lets everybody know who God is. He starts to love people well. And he, he spends his time, as we've studied, undoing all the mess that the established religious community had put into place by saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And then he'd flip the whole thing upside down so that they could begin again to relate to God in a personal way, which is why he came, which is what we celebrate when we move into the season of Advent. It's all about the coming of Christ, how amazing it is. My, my hope is that as you see, you know, the lights and the, and the things that we do in the trees, they're just to remind us that Jesus came. It's, it's to, 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 we sang about joy tonight, that, that joy, that, that Jesus entered the scene. How amazing it is that Jesus came. God, fully, um, fully man, fully God, Jesus came and lived among us a perfect, sinless life and then went to the cross and defeated death and rose again, which is what we celebrated Easter. And now we wait and we're waiting for him to come back again. Um, and so we're waiting for his second coming. But, but even as we think about Advent and his first coming, it should kind of remind us of his second coming too, that, that each time we celebrate, we, we're looking for Jesus to come back and how amazing it is in the process. And, and, and Jesus had come to his people, uh, Israel, and they missed it. They, they missed him. He had prepared them. Um, you know, it's, it's fascinating if you look at the feasts that they celebrated, all of them point to Jesus. And, and yet when they came, they were so stuck in their, their little box of how God should operate. And it, and it was all about their rules that they missed um, the Savior himself coming into the world. And so um, we want to be careful and learn from that. We talk about this, and even as we look through Romans, that we we don't begin to perceive God as a rule maker and and that the Bible is just a book full of rules um, that that we're to live by and then in our own sort of vigorous effort attempt to be good and try and become people always uh, doing the oughts and the shoulds um, because when we do that, we take our eyes off of Jesus and we we lose relationship with God. And, And... we're called, remember, to grow close to God in Christ, um, in relationship with the Holy Spirit, uh, understanding the love that God has for us and the grace and the mercy. And then, you know, we talk about living by trying to do the next right thing um, in response to that love, not trying to earn anything because it's been given to us through Christ. And so what we're called to is, is this, this sort of warm, loving guidance that's given to us by the Spirit. And then... Um, a response from us that says, yes, Lord, because of what he's done. And that's what, what it looks like and what Paul, Paul is trying to talk about. Anytime we try and live by the law, we miss the joy. And um, the inward battle we face in knowing that we can't make it and yet trying all the time rips away joy from us and it and ultimately steals away hope. But, but what's so cool is um, that God, perfect holy God, um, accepts us even though we're imperfect and fall short 
of, of, uh, of everything um, because he sees us in Christ. And, and so, I mean, if nothing else, when you, when you look at everything this year and as we approach Christmas, it's easy to get lost in, in you know, uh, uh, everything that's going on and it's all about, you know, gift giving and everything. But, but there's a joy that comes into the season and, and, and make sure you don't miss it. Um, and, and think that, that it's because we're in Christ that, that, that we can experience that and feel that. We're in Christ. And how amazing that is that God sees us in Christ. What a, what a great joy that we have. And, and we have our lives to live in, in making progress towards the Spirit of God working in us and, and making us more and more um, like Jesus. So uh, it's, it's just really cool to understand it in that context. Now... As we move into Romans 9, um, what we're going to see is that Paul's extremely proud of his Hebrew heritage, um, but he's anguished over the fact that his, his people um, had not responded with faith to Jesus as their Messiah. And he acknowledges that there's a, indeed a special relationship between Israel and God. Um, he'll even say there's, there's is the adoption of sons, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promise. And yet... Um, they, they miss it. And his point isn't that God isn't faithful. It's that, that they miss the fact that life is, and God is found in faith, in Christ. And that becomes um, the issue. The failure is not on God's end, but on, on Israel's end. And, uh, and that's what we look at. Okay, so that's uh, the preamble. I'm going to read you the 33 verses of Romans chapter 9. You can follow along in your Bibles. Um, you can follow along in the notes, however you want to do it. But I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. And... Uh, I have made the font nice and large on my Apple iPad, and I'm very happy about that. You could probably read it from there if you needed to. See, there you go, okay. (laughs) I don't need to put on my glasses because I can go and make those fonts really big. Here we go. Romans 9, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 1 and following. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as son. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Um, and that term hated there, it's a legal term um, more than an emotional one just because people go, did God hate him? No. Um, but but Paul is writing in a legal sense of what takes place when when the the older will actually serve the younger, which is not how it went in the normal course of events. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, 
I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on him who he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, well then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience uh, patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And blessed be the word of the Lord. One of the uh, fun things about reading through all of the New Testament is that you don't get to kind of hit and pick the easy stuff and skip over the stuff that's a little more difficult because that would be very tempting not ever to look into Romans 9 because there's a couple of pretty hard subjects in Romans 9. One of them being the sovereignty of God, which we have to touch on and, uh, and what that looks like. And just some of the things that happen, you think, oh, because the questions that Paul raises are normal. Well, that didn't seem fair. Why is that? That doesn't seem like that doesn't seem like something God should do. That doesn't seem fair. You ever have things like that when you read the scripture? You should, because some of it in our minds doesn't seem fair. God is extremely fair, but but the way we look at things a lot of times, it doesn't seem like it's fair. And um, we have a sense of very interesting justice um, that's not always the way God perceives. Although God is always just. So when there's an issue like that, guess what? It's not him, it's us, always. And uh, we have to look at things differently to, to the way that we can. But we, it's good, I think, that we get kind of stirred up to look at things every now and again and to try and wrestle through how that all fits together uh, in our lives and, and in the whole of what we know about God from the Scripture. How does all this stuff tie together when you start talking about you know, God's mercy and grace because it's so true and so real and forgiveness. And yet, now we're talking about objects of wrath and, and how can that be? And some are hardened and some aren't. And, and what's going on? Those are very good, honest questions. And uh, so, um, let's dig into it together. The first few verses, um, the first six verses, really, Paul starts out by talking about his concern for his Jewish brothers and sisters. And, and what he says is really um, fascinating. He says, look, if, I, if it would work, if I could do it, I'd take their punishment on. If that would get them in, I'd do it. Um, that's a tremendous sincerity and depth of love that he has for his people. It's really sincere. We know 
that Paul, whenever he went into a new town, always started by preaching to the Jews. Always. Always started to them. He wanted them to have a shot. Always. And then when they would reject him, which by and large they would, a few, he'd always get a few, um, then he would go to the Gentiles. But he always started with the Jews. He always wanted them to have that opportunity to respond by faith um, to who Jesus was. And, and he knew that was the deal. And when Jesus came, remember, that's where he went. That's where he spent it was, was his time. It was in that process of, of trying to give the people of Israel an opportunity to know who he was and to have relationship with him. But they reject him almost out of hand um, in huge numbers. And, and so obviously while the only one that can save us is Christ, um, Paul is, is showing the depth of his love in that statement in, in what he's doing. Okay, and then in verses 7 through 13, um, the discussion is on a thing called descendancy, um, which, is, which is really pretty interesting. Um, Paul looks into the history uh, 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 of the people of Israel, and what he says is that the promises of God were never uh, intended to include the, just the physical descendants of Abraham, that there was a deeper issue. And he makes the point by saying, you know, like uh, Ishmael, was, uh, Ishmael was a descendant of Abraham, yet he wasn't included in the covenant promise. The covenant promise came through Isaac. And so there you see that there's something, because Ishmael was a physical descendant of Abraham. And then he goes on and he talks about um, the twins, Jacob and Esau, that came through Isaac. And, and what's fascinating is while they were in the womb, before they had done anything, good or bad, either one of them, um, one was chosen to be the participant in the covenant line and one was excluded from it. And, you th- and, and it was the younger and not the older, which is really strange. And you go, well, why, why was that happening? God chose Jacob as the heir to the promise. He just does. And, and that's when people start going, well, wait, that doesn't, how does that all sort of make sense? And, and, uh, and that's what we talk about in the next subject when we talk about sovereignty a little bit. And it's just something to wrestle with. But uh, Paul, in those verses, he's making the point that Israel never meant the, just the, dis, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's not um, what Israel meant. Because remember, the people of Israel were hanging their hats on the fact that they were physical descendants. And Paul's saying that's not the issue. That doesn't make you a children of the promise. Uh, and, uh, and so that's a pretty big deal that Paul's making. Part of those things are why Paul wasn't real popular. <laughs> Just so you know, if you ever wondered why he was always run out of town, it was statements like that. And, uh, but he says it because it's true and they need to come to know Jesus. And they can't rest on... Um, their heritage and good works. Does that, you know, people still do that today, 2,000 years later? People still are trying to rest on, you know, their, their family heritage and that they're, they're pretty good people. And that's all, what it ought to be about. And it's still, it's still not true. It wasn't true then, and it's still not true 2,000 years later. You can't get in except by faith, your own faith in Christ, and, and it's not about your good works. It's about trusting in Him. And then, and then you live well in response to that. But, but not in trying to earn something because you can't earn it. Okay, so now in verses 14 through 23, the discussion switches over to the sovereignty of God. And um, this is a big subject because is it fair that God chose Jacob and not Esau? How does that seem fair in any stretch of the imagination that he picked one and not the other? What was, and, and it was before they had done anything. It wasn't on the basis of their good works, just of God's choice. Um, um, and so... 
God's sovereignty means that God acts freely. Um, his, his, his actions aren't limited by what we would do. Because he thinks differently than we do, fortunately. Because most of us have very, very finite thinking. And um, he says that among this um, whole process is that he, he, has, he can have mercy on who he have mercy. And he has compassion on who he has compassion. And that's where a lot of people begin to struggle with his process. Um, because they think, oh, well, that doesn't, that doesn't seem right. But let me tell you how, how, what I think about that, and then you can chew on it some more, and you can go from there. Um, I don't... Th- See, we have this thing called free will that God gave us. Most of you know what that is, right? Um, you have the opportunity to make choices for yourself. God gave it to you. It's one of the biggest things that God ever gave us, was the opportunity to make choices. We can either choose to serve and follow Him and love Him, or we can choose not to. That choice is, is in us, and I believe it's given to each one of us. And, and so I don't believe that God's sovereignty um, runs and uh, in, 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 uh, conflicts with our ability of free will. For example, things like this. The, the Bible talks about Pharaoh's heart being hard, and it says in one spot that um, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and it says in another spot that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Um, but here's what I believe about sovereignty. God, in his exercising his sovereignty, did not violate the freedom of the creation. Um, in, in that, I don't believe that God forced Pharaoh to do anything that Pharaoh wouldn't have already chosen to do because his heart was hard. So now you can, now you can think about that for a little while because what I just said is pretty important because um, I believe it's like this. There's, there's two groups of people. There's objects of his wrath and objects of his mercy. And, and um, that's a very true thing based on coming to Christ or not. But, but what group we belong to, I still believe, gets back to our ability to make choices. I really do. Now God, when he looks at things, is looking at things outside of time. And so uh, it looks different. And that's the only way I can explain it. It's not, it's God knows what, what's going to happen before it happens because he can see it out of the context of time. It doesn't mean that there's not a lots of different ways to get there, but he's already seen things that have happened. Um, and he has. I have this picture um, in my mind that I think about sometimes in trying to express this. I don't know if it'll help you or not. Um, it helps me some. Because my, my, my thinking's limited because I'm finite. But... Um, they, they just did the big Macy's parade. They do it every Thanksgiving. I don't know if you watch it. It's a family tradition in my house, and we passed it on. We, we get up Thanksgiving Day, and we watch the Macy's parade. It's just fun. And, uh, um, and, and we usually have cinnamon rolls, too. Um, I don't know why I'm bringing that on, but we do. So, because I like them. And she brought me some. Yeah, Kim made some. Oh, they were delicious. Thank you very much. So... Um, we haven't had as many cinnamon rolls lately since Alice's whole celiac thing, but nonetheless, still love a good, now gluten-free cinnamon roll. Okay, so um, I'm off course. Help me, Lord. I've told you that uh, up in Williston, when I visit in Ocala, sorry, um, that, that you know Scott's the pastor up there, and the media person up there, because Scott will go off on a bunny trail. Every time he goes off on a bunny trail, she puts a little bunny on the screen, and he can't see it. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, don't get any ideas, though. Um, okay, parade, uh, sorry. So, when, when, you, when we watch the parade on TV, 
Um, there, we just see the parade that's coming by what we can see, where the cameras are. And if you were watching the parade in person, you would see the parade as it passed by you. But this parade is three miles long. If you got up high enough and you had a different perspective, you could see the parade from beginning to end at the same time, right? But if your perspective is limited because you have a finite viewing space, you can only see the parade as it comes by you. So it exists in that period of time from beginning to end, but you can't see beginning and end. You can just see where you're at. So God, looking outside of time, sees it all from beginning to end. And so he can speak into it because he can see it differently. And so choices that are made during the parade that have been made, look, but look outside because we can't see it outside of time, and he does, often confuse us about his sovereignty and about um, election and about a lot of other things that we sometimes struggle with. Um, but it's my understanding of that that allows me to think that, um, that God um, uh, in his sovereignty still never crosses people's opportunity to choose and that we still all have that choice to make. Now, some people would disagree with me, and that's okay. Um, but that's how I see it, because he just sees the parade from beginning to end, and we're only seeing the part that we can see. But he can see it differently. So um, it always comes down to whether or not we choose to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior or not. That's, that's, the, that's the whole deal. That's why we're here. That's the bottom line. That's what it's all about. That's the choice we all have to make. And what we do with that is all about, and where we go with that, and well, that doesn't seem fair and right, and what about all these people? It's bigger than I can answer for you. All I can tell you is, as you're presented with that fact, you have to make that choice. And that choice has implications now and forever. Who do you say that Jesus is, and what are you going to do with that information? That's, that's all I can tell you, and all I understand. And, you know, my, my hope would be that you, you get that that's a really good choice. I always tell people it's the best deal in the universe. There's nothing better than that particular deal. Nothing. There's nothing out there that even is close to what, what is offered to us in Christ. Forgiveness of sins, a new start, new beginning, life now and life forever. There's nothing that even comes close. It's not, uh, you know, Christianity makes it different from everything else because it's not about what we do, it's about what's been done for us. And, and because it's been done at the cross, our response is just based on love. It's not trying to earn anything. We can't earn what's been given to us freely. And that's what sets it apart from everything else. Romans 9, 24 through 33. Um, he, Paul jumps back to the theme that he started earlier, that, that never in history has Israel included all the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he makes two points from the Old Testament. The first one is this, that the Old Testament has always taught, always taught that Gentiles would be saved. That's us. Romans 9, 24 through 26. Even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen in the very place where it was said to them, you're not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. That's a really good verse in Hosea about us because it's how we get in, in Christ. All right? And then, secondly, the Old Testament has always taught that only a remnant um, apart, not the whole nation of Israel will be saved. Uh, Romans 9, 27 through 29. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, and, Solom, Sodom pardon me, and we would become like Gomorrah. So Paul's teaching then on salvation by faith is in complete harmony with the Old Testament 
And it doesn't ever suggest that God is unfaithful to those promises that he's made. Um, It's just that faith has become the key to bringing in the Gentiles and um, to separating the spiritual remnant from the merely physical descendants of Abraham. And that's what Romans 9 has to say in 20 minutes. I mean, you know, (laughs) that's the best I can do in 20 minutes, guys, all right? There's a lot more stuff, but... That's all we got. So we'll end it there. If you're watching on television by video, thank you so much for spending your valuable time with us. We appreciate you doing that. We'll be back um, soon with uh, the next message. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again.